Hi everyone. It's a joy to be back with you. If you didn't know or if you've forgotten, I've been away on long service leave the last five weeks. It's, it's actually the longest I've ever been away from uh, the church I've been a part of uh, in my whole life. And it's so it's really just wonderful to be back uh, with God's people. I loved having dinner uh, with so many of you on Wednesday night. And I'm so glad to be getting into these verses in Genesis with you for our last week in this series for now. Uh, so have your Bible open back to Genesis 11 there, and then also your outline will show you the headings of where we're going. But did you know, did you know that in order to be born, you need two parents? I hope you know that. You need two parents, four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 second great-grandparents, 32 third great-grandparents, 64 fourth great-grandparents, 128 fifth great-grandparents, this is quite hard to say, 256 sixth great-great-parents, great-grandparents, 512 seventh great-grandparents, 1,024 eighth great-grandparents, 2,048 ninth great-grandparents. For you to be born today from the previous 12 generations, you need at least 4,094 ancestors over the last about 400 years. Now, what do, I, what do I take from that? What I take from that is that we should never, ever, ever complain about the genealogies, the family tree lists in the book of Genesis. Uh, they could have been so much longer with so many more names if every person in every generation had been listed out. So be thankful that Genesis is not as long as that as it could have been. Uh, today is our last sermon in the book of Genesis, and we've seen some more names, another big list of a family tree. Uh, and then next week, we're going to return to the glorious book of Romans, which has no family trees in it. But first, we have to think, before we get into those verses we saw before, we have to think about the story so far in Genesis. What have we seen in this beginning part of the Bible? We're seeing God create everything out of nothing. And he declared it all to be very good. And then we've seen what happened? Humanity rebel against the God who made them. Two weeks ago, it all culminated when we saw Noah and the flood. God wiped out humanity because of their sin. But then he saved Noah and his family through the ark. And then last week we saw things continue. See human sin kept happening. The Tower of Babel where people gathered together to ignore God and glorify themselves. And so God humbled them and confused their language and scattered them all over the world. We've seen these remarkable stories and events, haven't we? But all along the way, we've also seen in Genesis these family trees, these lists of people and descendants. Why? Why all these family trees? What, what is the book of Genesis telling us by telling us all these things? Well, first, it's giving us a picture of the origins of humanity. It's telling us where this country is and where that country is and who, how did they come about. But more importantly than that, Genesis is all about the promise made back in chapter 3, verse 15. Do you remember? When Adam and Eve sinned against God and God cursed them, one of the curses against the serpent on Satan, one of those curses came with a promise. And so God said this. He said, I will put hostility between you, serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed and her seed, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. See, what is God doing with this promise of a serpent-crushing seed descendant? The descendant who will crush the Satan's head. 
This is actually the thing that unifies the whole book of Genesis, the promise of a seed of Eve, tracing the family lines, looking for him. That's the thing that joins the whole book of Genesis together. what each of the parts of the story are actually about. It's why there's these lists of family names and people. Genesis is searching for, looking forward to, when will God bring about this one who crushes Satan, who destroys his power, the tempter, the accuser, the evil one, and does away with him. Well, today in our passage, we see the very same thing going on. So what are we dealing with in Genesis today? We see two things. You've got them on your outline. Uh, number one, we see some more family trees, the family trees of Shem and Terah, which then leads us to, number two, the all-important promises to Abram or Abraham as God changes his name to later on. So let's get into those last verses of Genesis 11. We get more family trees. And as Phil's been saying, it's very easy to, to kind of gloss over these parts, for our eyes to glaze over at these lists of names and not really think they're important. But if we just take a few moments to notice a few things, we start to see just how important they are. Having said that, we're not going to look at every single name in this list. But come with me, just look at verse 10. Verse 10 grounds us in history. It says, These are the family records of Shem. Shem lived a hundred years and fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. So when is this? It's two years after the great flood. Two years after God's great and terrible judgment swept away humanity. Two years after God saved Noah and his family and they stepped out of the ark alive. So what does that show us? Just that fact which shows us that God is faithful. See, at the beginning of the creation, God blessed humanity and said, be fruitful and multiply. He said the same thing to Noah and his family, go be fruitful and multiply. And then pretty much straight away, what does God do? He blesses humanity. They are fruitful and they multiply. God increases humanity. He's faithful to his word. He's generous and he blesses mankind. What we see is that this is actually, this family tree here is bridging the gap between the great flood and the calling of Abram. God calling him and making these great and precious promises. And here, Genesis, what is it doing? Remember, it's drawing the line, tracing the line of families until it gets to the seed, the one promise back in chapter 3. Tracing the firstborn sons through the line of Shem, it says here. This is the family line of Shem. Okay, so we get to this person named Shem. Who is Shem? We need to remember he's one of the sons of Noah. So now the other two sons of Noah, we've forgotten their names. They're not important anymore. It's Shem who becomes important. And it just traces the family line of Shem. Now we've already seen some of, family, some of the family line of Shem. Uh, and so why is it here again? Well, last time it was describing the origins of different nations and all kinds of names and people. Now it's just the people, the, the son who gets to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation to get us closer to the one who was promised in chapter 3. So this is just the highlights reel of Shem's family line. So it says, if you look at it there, it says, this guy fathered that guy, and then that guy fathered the next. And we know almost nothing about most of these people. And then we get to Peleg in verse 18. Do you remember last week? Uh, Peleg means division. And so probably this is when the Tower of Babel happened. And then further we get Serug. And I only mention him because I think his name is great. He's my favorite in all that list, Serug. It just feels good to say Serug. 
Uh, and then down in verse 26 there it says, have a look, it talks about Terah who lived seven years and fathered Abraham, Nahor and Haran. Now what's different there? Once we get to Terah, we don't just get one son's name, we get the name of his three sons. And so Genesis, it breaks the pattern or, or it slows the story right down at pivotal moments where important things happen. And so it's meant to catch our attention. What's special about Terah and his three sons? The story at this point gets closer to the seed, to the one promised in chapter 3. And, these, and then more significant events happen as we uh, trace that seed from chapter 3. So now the story slows right down and we focus just on the family of Terah. Stick with me. There's lots of names and places, but we'll get there. See, if you look over those verses from verse 27 and on, we start to get a little bit more detail. We start to get some hints of things that are going to happen soon. Here's a few examples. Look at verse 28. We learn that one of Terah's sons, Haran, he dies young. And then look at the end of verse 27. We get told about Lot. And he will soon become a main character because his father Haran dies early. In verse 29, we learn about some of the women and the wives because down the track, their descendants come back into the story. So there's all these hints of things to come later in the story. And the most important details come in verse 30 and on. So look there, it says, First, Sarai, who's Abram's wife, she's unable to conceive. They had no kids. And that happens just before Abram is told, you're going to have many descendants. So how's that going to work? We're going to read on and find out. And then in verse 31 and on, we learn that Terah and Abram and Sarah and Lot, they make the big move from their home country in Chaldea or Babylon and they travel across to Canaan. Canaan, the place that becomes, the land that becomes the focus for the rest of the whole Old Testament, the promised land. But they don't get there. They actually settle halfway in a place called Haran, which is a place, not the man who died earlier. That's confusing. They're both named Haran. Uh, they're different. One's a man, one's a place. And then in verse 32, that's where Terah dies, Abram's father. And that makes the way for now the story to focus on just that one man, Abram or Abraham. So now the story slows down even more. You see, for the last seven chapters, from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11, there's been heaps of generations, huge family trees, thousands of people. But now we get the story of Abram, and it all just grinds to a halt almost. See, for seven chapters, we've had all these generations of people. But for now, the rest of the book of Genesis, for 39 chapters, we get just four generations. And the first one is Abram's, and we get, just, and we get 14 chapters on just him. So here's that, that hinge, that turning point in the book of Genesis and the Bible so far. The story slows right down. It all focuses in on Abram and his family. Why? It's because God is doing something new. God is doing something big. God brings the next stage of his plans for history. He makes the next big step in the promise of the seed who would come from Eve's family line, the one who would crush the serpent, the one who would destroy Satan. So now we reach Genesis 12, these all-important promises to Abram. You see, God, he's been in relationship with various people so far in Genesis. Adam and Eve knew God. Noah knew God. 
Enoch walked with God, and, and there are various people who called on the name of Yahweh, God. And God, he made promises to some of these people, didn't he? And he made covenants and agreements with a few people along the way. So he promised Eve that, that one of her seed would crush the serpent's head. He, he promised Noah and all the creatures that he would never wipe the world out with a flood again. He even promised Cain, the murderer, that no one would murder him. But those promises are different to these promises here that God makes to Abram. See, here, God chooses to make a covenant with one man out of all the people of the world. And he chooses to bless him in a different way to all other people. He singles him out for a special relationship with him and his descendants. Why? Why does God choose Abram in this special way? Well, hopefully we'll see as we look at the promises he makes to Abram. So I hope you know these next few verses, the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. Uh, these verses are just one of those must-know passages if you want to understand the story of the Bible. If you want to understand Jesus, you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand the gospel, God's plans for history, you must understand Genesis 12. If you don't, then this is just another plug for the PTC course, uh, Intro to the Bible, which started last week. I hope those of you who are doing it are really enjoying it and you learn a lot. And if you missed out, well, that just means you have to sign up next year when it comes along. And if you do know these words in Genesis 12, well, if you know these promises well, then let's not take them for granted now. Let's be amazed again at how good and gracious God is here. But let's get into the actual verses. What are the great promises to Abram, or Abraham, as he becomes known as? We'll look down at chapter 3, verse 1 with me. It starts like this. The Lord said, to Abram. Now, we don't know how God spoke or revealed himself to Abram, but that just shows us that it's what he says that matters. It's his word. It's the content of his promises that is what matters. So it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, Abram, your relatives and your father's house, to the land I will show you. So what's the first promise? Land. See, God commands him, leave your land and go to a new land. Why? Because I'm going to give it to you. Owning land and having a national land, it was, it still is today, a big deal for humanity. Isn't it one of the main reasons why there's wars going on in the world? Wasn't it part of the reason for the referendum that the land would be acknowledged? Wasn't it, isn't it something that we all struggle with, wanting to have a place to live, wanting to buy so that, you know, before the market goes crazy or interest rates or whatever. Uh, but God, he makes this big promise to Abram. I'm going to give you a land, not just a plot of land, not just, you know, a nice three-bedroom house. No, not, and not just an estate. He says, I'm going to give you a country. I'm going to give you a, an, a, a whole land. Or more precisely, God will give this land to Abram's descendants. See, look at verse 2. This is the second part of the promises. God says, I will make you, Abram, into a great nation. I will bless you and your name will be great. Abram's name will be famous. Why? Because from Abram, God will bring about countless offspring so that they become a great nation. He will give Abram more descendants than stars in the sky, more than sand on the seashore, more than the dust of the earth. Family and descendants, a family line, a family name, all those things are so important to humanity, aren't they? They still are to this day. And God promises Abram all those things, a multitude of offspring who will become a great nation. 
But there's one more part to the promise. There's a grand design to these promises, and it's this. Look at verse 2 again. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. What's the repeated word? Bless. Blessed. Blessing. The last part of God's promise is blessing. What is blessing? To be blessed is to have God's eye of favor on you. It's to have his view of favor on you so that he gives you good gifts. He gives you good things. He blesses you with things you don't deserve. He blesses you maybe with things that other people don't have. Blessing, and it's also the opposite of curse. See, what have we seen in Genesis so far? God has cursed humanity for their sin. The curse of sin runs rampant in the world, but now God chooses to bless. He's still gracious. He doesn't wipe out humanity, but now he goes far beyond that. He promises to reverse the curse of sin and bless Abram and his descendants. God will bless Abram. He'll bless him with a relationship with him. He commits to faithful, ongoing love to him, walking with him. He will bless Abram by meeting his needs and making him into a prosperous and powerful nation. And that blessing will flow on to his descendants after him. They will live with him. They will walk with him. They will enjoy his favor, the nation of Israel that they will become. But the blessing doesn't stop there, does it? Because it says... You, Abram, will be a blessing. And all the peoples, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. You see, other tribes and peoples will come into contact with you and with your descendants and and they will benefit from me blessing you. They will be blessed too. And so the rest of Genesis is the story of God fulfilling those promises, giving Abram and his descendants a land, giving giving him descendants, and blessing them so that they become the nation of Israel who blesses the nations that are around them. That's what we see happening in the rest of Genesis, in the rest of the Old Testament. And so when you, when you stop and think about it for a second, that in and of itself is just really incredible. See, for a random nobody from the backwater of Mesopotamia, Abram, whose wife can't have children, For him, out of the blue, to hear the voice of the living and one and true God who made all things and to have God's absolute promise and commitment of love and blessing to become a great nation, playing on the world stage. Just think, thousands of years later, the name of Israel is known across the world, especially at the moment. Most of all, for this random, undeserving man to to receive all the focus of God's blessing and favor and love and protection out of all the peoples on the earth. Maybe our modern ears just really struggle to grasp and comprehend that. Or maybe we're just really familiar with the story, and so it just rushes over us. But these promises to Abram are outlandish. They're overabundant. They're beyond the imagination of a simple ancient man. They're beyond our grasp today if we'll just stop and think about it for a moment. See, I think to get our heads around it in our kind of globalized 7 billion people world that we live in, I think to get our heads around it, it, we need to think about this. Just imagine if, if God showed up to you and he said to you today, 
I'm going to give you North America. Or I'm going to give you the continent of Africa. It'll be yours. You'll be the president. And then you'll have this enormous family to live across the whole continent and to rule it and run it. Maybe that just captures the bigness to our modern ears. How would you feel? How would you respond if God showed up and said that to you? These promises of God are huge for Abram. Even if we just think about them physically and what they mean for this life, let alone what they mean spiritually and for eternity, for the world to come. See, God chooses Abram and he loves him and he makes this outlandish and generous promises to him and to his offspring. God is the God who chooses to bless. Despite human sin, which is all we've seen for seven chapters in Genesis, despite humanity rebelling against him and ignoring their creator, God doesn't give up on his creation. He doesn't give up on humanity made in his image. We're kind of meant to stand back at this point and just be in awe of God. Wow, Yahweh, the God of Abram, the one true and creator God is Good. He's kind. He's generous. He does what he doesn't have to do. He does what no human would do in a million years. He doesn't treat his creatures as they deserve. He relents. He shows them grace and patience and love. And he chooses some of them. And then he waits for their repentance and faith as he reveals himself to them and calls them to worship him and to obey him. And he works those things in their lives. Bring him to himself, to bring them to himself and to glorify him. This is what he is like. And this is what Genesis begins to unfold for us. And then the rest of the scriptures keep showing us these same things. Yes, yes, it shows us his holiness and his righteousness and his might and his fearsome wrath, but it also shows us his abundant mercy and his compassion and his faithful love. So that's what we see here in Genesis 12 with Abram. When God chooses one man from all the earth to become his people, to become his treasured possession. But you might be asking at this point, well, why? You know, and why, do, why does God do it like this? Why does he choose Abram? Well, let's kind of wrap up this passage and, and this section of Genesis with a few final thoughts. See, why does he preserve the line of Shem and Terah? And why is it traced out here? Why does he choose Abram and make special promises to him and to his descendants. Was it because he liked Abram more than other people? No, it wasn't anything good in him. See, have a look at Joshua 24. This is later in Israel's history. Joshua, the leader of God's people, he's addressing the nation, God's people, the descendants of Abram. And he says to all the people, this is what the Lord says. He says, long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. They were sinners. They were pagans. It goes on, but I took your father Abraham from the region beyond the Euphrates River, led him throughout the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants. God doesn't give any reason there, does he? He didn't choose Abraham because of anything good in him. He was an idol worshipper from an idol worshipping family. But God said, I'm choosing you to bless and fulfill all my purposes. It's pure grace. So why did God choose him over anyone else? We don't know. In the secret counsel of God's mind and heart, in the all-wise God's decision-making, this is what he decided. 
This is who he wanted to choose. We don't know the reason why God chose Abram specifically or why he chooses any of us to be saved. But what we do know actually is is the purpose, the goal of why he saves Abram. See, God chose Abram and he made these promises to him. Why? To fulfill his great plans for humanity and the world that he made for his glory. We actually see that in two ways which we're going to finish with. We actually, see in this, we actually see this purpose right here in the promises that God made to Abram. Do you see that? He says, all peoples, we've already, we've already thought about this, all peoples, all nations, all kinds of people will be blessed through Abram. God will bless Abram and his descendants, and through them, he will bless the world. He will be the, they will be the channel, they will be the vessel for God to bring his blessing to the world. And then the rest of the Bible is just mapping that out. And we could trace that out. We could trace that out. That's what we could do. We don't have time to do that now. But if we did, we look at Abram and Sarah. And we look at Joseph. Or we look at Hannah. Or we looked at David and Solomon. Or we could think about Elijah or even Daniel. And see how God blessed the nations through them. That's why we have intro to the Bible. That's why we should have that godly habit of daily opening up the Scriptures so that we can see yet another way that God fulfills his promises to Abram and blesses all the nations through him. How it all fits together. But in choosing and calling and saving and making these promises to Abram, God was, God still is, bringing blessing to all the world, all the nations. It's what the whole rest of the Bible is on about from here on. And because we, because you and I, have the rest of the story right here, you and I know where it all leads. See, we know how God ultimately fulfills his wonderful promises to Abram. We read about it before, those beautiful words in Galatians 3. You see, these promises to Abram, they're not just about physical blessing in a physical land for Abram's physical descendants. No, in Galatians 3, Paul shows us God's intention was always for there to be spiritual blessing and that he would bring, Abram would bring spiritual blessing to the world. We're going to look at it again. Have a look at the screens. This is what Paul says. He says, Now the scripture, Genesis, saw in advance that God would justify, save the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, and told the good news, the gospel, ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying something amazing. He's saying that this promise that God made to Abraham thousands of years ago, here in Genesis 12, that all nations will be blessed through you, that this is actually God announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ ahead of time. See, when God spoke these words to Abram, what he ultimately had in mind was the good news of Jesus, that he would bring blessing to all the nations with. And how did God do this? How did God bless the world through Abram, through Abraham? It was because he sent his son. He sent his son to be the great descendant of Abram. Jesus of Nazareth, Israel's tribe of Judah, the Christ, the Messiah, the King promised in the family line of David, all the genealogies come down and meet with him. He's the one who brings Abram's blessing to all the nations. 
God sent him to live and die and rise again to bless the world through Abram and his descendants. See, Paul explains this later in Galatians 3. How is the world blessed through Abram? It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse, the punishment of God's law, because we can't keep it. Christ has redeemed us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. He died on the cross. Because it's written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose, God's purpose in doing this, was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, to the nations, by Jesus Christ, so that we could receive the promised spirit by faith. See, through the cross of Jesus and through faith in him, we have the blessing that flows through Abram to the rest of the world, to us. All the nations can hear the good news of Jesus Christ living and dying and rising for us so that anyone who comes to him in faith has forgiveness and eternal life, all spiritual blessings in Jesus. See, it all comes together in Jesus. Every promise of Abram is fulfilled in him. The whole world is blessed through Abram and his descendants because of the Lord Jesus. That was God's intention way back here in Genesis 12. And so our response should be wonder and amazement and giving glory to God. Who is wise but God to, to conceive and to plan and to promise and to enact and to fulfill these great promises? Who is wise but God to send his son to die and rise and to pour out blessing and eternal life on all who turn to him in faith. If you turn to Jesus in faith, well, then you get to know God's blessing through Abram, promised thousands of years ago, and you get to rejoice that you were caught up in those wonderful things promised all those years ago. But there's another reason uh, God chooses to bless Abram here to, and promises these things. It actually goes be, uh, earlier than Genesis 12. This is what we'll finish with. See, why did God choose Abram to make these prom- and make these promises here? Well, the answer is because of his promise about Eve back in chapter 3, verse 15. See, because of his promise that, that her seed, her descendant, would crush the serpent's head, that one day God would, descend the one, would send the one who would destroy the power of Satan, who, who tempts and accuses and leads the world astray from God. One day humanity would be free from Satan from the, when the serpent crusher comes. Well, here God is being faithful to his word. He's preserving that line, that seed. He's about to bring about the generations. He's bringing about the generations who will one day bring about the one man the serpent crusher, the Satan destroyer. And again, who is the one who fulfills that promise? It's the scripture. It's the Sunday school answer. The serpent crusher is Jesus. He's our Lord. He's the great descendant of Eve and of Shem and of Terah and of Abram. That's why all those family trees are there, because they all lead to Jesus. It's why the promises to Abram are there, because that's how God will bring about the one who would crush Satan's head. It all gets us to Jesus. See, the Apostle John says it like this in 1 John 3. He says, the Son of God, Jesus, was revealed. He came for this purpose to destroy the devil's works. 
to crush his head. And there's so many places where we could see this play out in the New Testament and how Jesus does this. But we're just going to look at one example in Revelation 12, just quickly as we finish. This is what uh, John says. He says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, Jesus, has come. Jesus has lived. He's died. He's risen again. He reigns. And then he goes on, Because the accuser of our brothers... Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, has been thrown out. The one who accuses us before God day and night, they, God's people, conquered him. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus, by his death for us, and by the word of their testimony. See, the book of Genesis is looking for that seed of Eve, the serpent crusher. See, Genesis is looking for him, And looking forward to him, but we know him. Do you realize how good that is? I hope you know him. I pray that each one of us here and that countless thousands out these doors know Jesus, the serpent crusher, the one who frees us from the power and the oppression of Satan that he has been oppressing humanity with since the beginning. If you know Jesus, well, then you know the peace that he can't, Satan can't accuse you before God anymore. Your sin is dealt with, it is forgiven. If you know Jesus, you know the peace that spiritual forces, that demons can't hurt you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. If you know Jesus, then you know the freedom from the fear of death. Because Jesus defeated death. And he defeated the one holding the power of death. He crushed the serpent's head. So all that's left now is for Jesus to return, cast him out forever, and that will be it. Turn to Jesus. Turn and know the one who crushes the power of Satan, the one that Genesis is looking for, the one who has come. Praise Jesus, and thank you, God, for blessing us through him. Amen.